I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Um, today, uh, the scripture reading is from the book of John, verses 19 through 31. When, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he, has, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was also called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is a Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And let's sing one more time the whole thing together. believe my Savior is near, and for my relief, 
surely prevail. The word he has spoken will surely prevail. As we get ready to hear the word of God proclaimed today, let's watch this video first. Um, actually, my favorite story in the Bible is the story of Thomas. What? Um, it is. The uh, failure. The failure of Thomas. No, because, and, and it's my favorite story, and it, I hate the way that people talk about it. I hate it with all, like, oh, I have so much passion about it. In fact, the first sermon I ever preached was on that text. Um, because I was a, I, I, it was sort of like Youth Sunday. Um, which I didn't realize at the time they picked probably strategically to be the Sunday after Easter so that someone would sh- actually show up and right. so that the priest probably didn't have to preach. Um, but they asked me to preach on that day. Um, and, and I fell in love with this story when I preached it the first time um, as a youth, uh, someone who never thought about going to seminary or, or doing the priest thing or any of that stuff. Um, you know, and I, like I said, I, I just I fell in love with it and I fell in like hating the way that people talk about it so much um, because you know, so often this is the way the story goes it goes uh, Thomas is a doubter doubting is bad don't be like Thomas and um, I just think that is so missing the point because what do you have in this story you have it's um, by the way I also uh, I also drives me crazy that it's the story for the Sunday after Easter because I feel like it is the story that most people walking into church most Sundays like need to hear the most, because what is this story? The story is like all of the disciples are doubting. Like all of them are um, scared and afraid because Jesus has died and we didn't know. Like we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't know that they wouldn't be next. So they locked themselves in a room and, um, and in the midst of this room, through the locked door, somehow, miraculously, whatever, Jesus shows up and um, speaks to them. And they are moved, and he breathes on him the holy on them the Holy Spirit, uh, and then they run and they go find Thomas, and um, they tell Thomas what happens, and Thomas says, "Okay, well that sounds great, but I won't believe until I put my hands in his wound in, in, in his wounds." And then, uh, and then what happens next? Thomas actually gets what he asked for, at least part of it. Like, Jesus appears to Thomas. He thinks he needs to touch his wounds, but he doesn't actually. As soon as he sees Jesus, he falls to his knees and says, my Lord, my God. And so, to me, like, it's an Easter story. It's not a story about doubt. It's a story about how far Christ will go to reach us. It's it's a story about how um, nothing, not a lock on a door, not a doubt on the human heart, not a, not, a, not, uh, not a stone on a tomb. Nothing can stop the resurrected Christ from reaching us. It's a story about God's power and triumph and commitment to us as human beings and his followers. It's not a story about how we mess it up. I don't understand why we always have to try to make every story about God to be a story about how we mess it up. But e- because Easter is not about that. It's about, yeah, you've got doubts. The risen Christ will reach you. Yeah, you're scared and you're locked away. The risen Christ will, re- will meet you. Yeah, you're grieving and alone. The risen Christ will meet you. It's an Easter story. Thanks, Brian, for turning the light back on. Would you pray with me? May our minds be open, God, to your word 
May our lips speak your word until we know it. May our hearts digest your word today, that it may truly be meaningful and impactful in our lives and the way we interact with others in the world. It's the same we pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, I recently saw on PBS this segment about a man named Sir Alan Sugar. Sugar? I don't know how to pronounce it, really. Um, but Sir Alan Sugar, um, he is known for his, he's a computer mogul from the UK, and he's talking in this interview about, about in the 1980s, in his younger days, when his firm is designing this fantastically popular Amstrad home computer. I do not remember this time. I, wasn't, I was barely born, but I found it super fascinating. It never actually made it across here to the United States, but it was wildly successful in the UK. And one day his colleagues told him, Sir Alan, we've, we've got the motherboard, we have, we have the disk drive and the casing, and it looks great, and we have all the rest, but if it's ever going to sell, it's going to need a super fast set of software. And, and, and if you go across the, to the United States, that's where you'll find the super fast software. You'll, you'll find that they know the most about the super fast software at this point in the 80s. And he says, quiet, don't talk to me about software, I know what I'm doing, don't talk to me about something on the other side of the ocean that I know nothing about, talk to me about something that I can see. Get to work on the motherboard, get to work on the casing, show me that. Show me the casings, the tubes, the screens, that's what's going to make this computer sell. I'm not putting my money on something fluffy that is across the Atlantic that I've never heard about, never seen before, don't know if it works. In fact, he had all the information he needed, but he wasn't just going to take their word for it. They knew everything, but he refused to listen to them. Anyhow, it becomes this incredibly, incredibly um, famous computer, super, like it's sold all over um, the UK. But he had to invest at this point in the unseen, in, in the unseeable, the intangible software across a pond that, that he knew nothing about. And it became wildly successful. Perhaps if Sir Allen were to have taken a psychological profile test today, he would have almost certainly emerge as a high S on the Myers-Briggs indicator. For those of you who are are not familiar with the S or have very little interest in profiles, uh, taking, taking these personality profiles or you roll your eyes at these such tests. Um, the S stands for sensing and sensing types believe in things that they can see right in front of them, can touch, can hear, can taste, can smell. They, they hanker after things close to the senses, things immediately present before them, things they can check out for themselves directly, things that are just there, up close and, and personal things. S-types, sensing types, crave immediacy of evidentiary support, and that's what makes them more unlikely to trust what others have to say on things. They get weary in the midst of what they categorize as hearsay. So, Sugar admits that he once sent a birthday card to his wife, signed, best wishes, Sir Alan Sugar, because extreme sensing types are cagey about even trusting close relatives. <laughs> when, when, they're, when they are with others, it's common for them to not feel very up close and, and personal with even 
their, their spouse and their parents. True, like deep sensing types, extreme sensing types are always on an in, insatiable quest for confirmation about everything, for more concrete evidence. And even if you tell me you love me, I'm still not sure. They always need to know more than they need to know. Most of us are familiar with these types of people. In fact, I, as I'm saying this right now, I'm seeing some little elbows like being like thrown in certain directions in the room. This is the type of person who always has to run back and check the front door to make sure it's locked, even though you've told them twice that you've already locked it. Um, those who kind of want to go over the balance sheet one more time, even though the accountants already checked and approved it. Those who won't believe um, the sad, you know, crockpot truth of This Is Us, the episode, until they've finally read or watched the, the episode for themselves. Um, this is also like the woman on the sixth floor of uh, Mount Vernon Hospital who would not believe that I was a pastor until I ran back to my car and dug out a, um, a business card that she could compare with my ID that had a picture of me on it because, like, what I want to be doing with myself, my time on a Friday evening is be wearing a, a clergy collar at a hospital. Like, I'm going to make this stuff up. People who need to see and know more than they need to know. People like Thomas. Thomas, who bumps into the disciples, you've now heard this story three times, bumps into the disciples a few days after Jesus' crucifixion for some reason, we don't know why, but he missed out on that moment. Never did he see the, the grave clothes like Peter saw. Thomas doesn't get the firsthand account. We've seen the Lord, they tell him. In fact, 10 of them tell him. 10 of his most faithful, closest friends for, for three solid years say, Thomas, yes, yes, we actually promise you we have seen the man. But that, that's not enough for Thomas as the S type. For Thomas types, he, he's going to invest. He's not going to invest in anything that is, that is fluffy. Even a ten, tenfold testimony won't satisfy him unless he sees the nail marks in the hands and puts his fingers in those marks themselves. He's not going to believe it. He's that S type. Thomas yearns for that land beyond the second-hand account. He needs to know more than he needs to know. Thomas will soon be a leader in the church. One prominent type of leadership in the church um, in the New Testament is enshrined in the word episcopus, and it means overseer or, or, or bishop. Many thought that Thomas goes on to become a bishop in the church, and to some extent, all leaders are called to this kind of overseeing at some point in time. And there are two types of overseers. There's the type one overseer, it's the Thomas kind, at least the Thomas that we meet at the beginning. Type one overseers always, always need to know more than they need to know. They, they oversee by overseeing, by trying to see more than they need to see. Some of us call them micromanagers. Some of them are called maybe control freaks. These leaders believe not that the devil is in the details, but that God is in the details and God has called them to also be in the details of everything you do. They attend every committee meeting. They scrutinize every budget. They memorize everybody's work schedules, right? All must be transparent, available to the overseeing, overviewing person. Unless I can see and touch the work you've done, 
I'm not so sure about you yet. The type one overseer sort of hovers around his or her people, right? A very present help in trouble, as the psalmist would put it, or maybe just for us, a very present load of trouble for us. Because if you work with an extreme, unbalanced, sensing type person, you, you live in this perpetual edginess. You just, you just wanna get on with the job, don't you? But, but you've got this distinct impression that, that you've been constantly monitored all the time. Someone is looking over you. The overseer is always two inches over your shoulder or just around the corner, and you're never quite sure if you're trusted really, never quite trusted by the one to whom you, for whom you work and who should be trusting you for that work. And, and there, but there is another, another type of overseer. There, there's the type two overseer, the type that Thomas eventually becomes, the type that Thomas became the day when he joined the disciples behind locked doors and Jesus appears to him. Go on, Thomas, put, put your finger here. Put your hand to, the, to my side, Jesus says. Jesus knows just what to say to appeal to an S type. But in the end, Thomas does not have to put his hand anywhere. There is no hint in this story that Thomas moved a muscle in this scene. Stories have been told for over a millennia. Paintings have been rendered for centuries of Thomas driving his fingers into the open wounds on Christ's chest, thrusting them an inch deep. But there's none of this in the text. Zero. None of it. In the text, all we have are the words of naked belief. My Lord and my God. Thomas didn't have to touch Jesus. That's the whole point of the story. In fact, he didn't, he didn't even have to see him either. None of this was really needed. He, he didn't need to know more than he needed to know, and that's what he needed to discover that day. Not only did Thomas need to know that there was room for even him, with all his doubt, in the Christian story, and that, that Jesus himself even invited and persuaded his doubt. Not only did Thomas need to know that God had raised Jesus from the dead, literally bodily, but he needed to know that he could have taken the disciples for their word. They had seen him. The testimony was solid, rock hard, strong with the truth of God. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Thomas, of course, blushes, blushes as he catches the eye of his friends standing around. Friends he could have trusted, but didn't. We don't, we don't know exactly what happens to Thomas. All sorts of leg legends grow about him. Um, some say that he was the one who brought the church over to India. He became an overseer of some type in the early church, perhaps a bishop in the area of India. But Wherever he ended up, no matter how much his S sensibilities dominated his psyche, he could not be a type one overseer of this area in the early church, not after this encounter. Type two overseers, what, what Thomas surely had to be, don't oversee by overseeing, but by just trust. Trust is in the air that they breathe, and if we have ever had a supervisor like this, you know what it's like to be led by them. You know what it's like to be trusted by them. 
the type two overseer trusts those they care for. There is, there's no need to micromanage them at all. Of course, they need to cross their T's and dot their I's as you would as a manager, but, but, but they also know that the people, that, that people work best when they know they're trusted, that trusted by someone who, who doesn't need to know more than they need to know about anything. Type, type two overseers trust those who have gone before them to, to have led, to have laid the right foundation, and they give credit to that. Most good leaders read biographies, and they keep good company, and they get inside the skin of those who have made a difference before they ever arrived on the scene. Roosevelt, Churchill, Mary Curie, Mandela, Martin Luther King. They're, they'll talk about these people the way they talk about close friends or, or mentors as, as if as if they believe that they're being overseen themselves by this cloud of, of witnesses. In the church, we call this the communion of saints. Type two overseers learn to trust the wise saints of the past. They learn about those. They cozy up to those who they can really trust as, as people of faith rather than wasting time trying to overknow, to know things they don't need to know more than that type two overseers, Christian type two overseers, have found that they can trust the words that stand at the heart of scripture, that the testimony of those who wrote them long before. This is one of the most basic things about being a Christian. In fact, it's so basic. It's so basic that, that you almost forget how basic it is. You can spend ages exploring the history of these texts. You can spend hours investigating their reliability, pointing out the striking agreement of the different accounts of the same events. You can build up strong cases for, for saying that these, these really are rooted in, in eyewitness accounts. Yes, you can do all of these things. But there does come a time when we have to realize that we can't go back there and play the video from the security cameras in Galilee to see whether the apostles didn't really get it right. There comes, there comes a moment when we have to ask, are we going to trust them? And yet, and yet all of this trusting can sound, oh, so shaky. It, it, it might be all right for clergy or, or super Christians or all those heroes in history, right? But what about the rest of us? Are we going to stake our Christian faith on mere testimony, on mere hearsay, on this news that in all likelihood is fake? Don't we need something a bit more secure, a bit more dependable, just a bit more direct and tangible in front of us? Oh, if only I could wake up one morning and open the blinds and see a clear message from the risen Jesus painted across the skies just for me. But if Thomas could speak to us this morning in his type two overseeing self, leading this new church in the new world, he would say something like this, blessed are those who have not seen but still have believed. God has given you what you need to believe. People's word you can trust. That's it. You don't need to know more than you need to know. What do you need to know in this corner of DC metro area today? that in a church like this one, you can find people you can trust. That in a culture where distrust and mistrust is absolutely systemic, where we suspect even a southern smile as some form of manipulation, here, 
here in this place in the church, you're supposed to be able to find an oasis of trust. That's what this place is. What do you need to know as you come to this place week after week after week with all your doubt, all your unknowns? There are many things you don't need to know, but you need to know these. Here, here in this place, you can find where people who, who say what they mean and, and mean what they say. That's what you should find here. You, you, should, you should find people who live inside their words and live those words out. Here you should find people that all the lines of trust point to one direction, to something unseen, someone unseen, yet alive and completely trustworthy. What do you need to know? That you can trust the saints of the past. That when you worship here as we have done today, there have been millions who have come before you who have believed and who have doubted just like you do, a cloud of witnesses who now invite you to take their word for it. What do you need to know? That you can trust these words, the precious writings that we heard read this morning by Dalier, that when all is said and done, we have massively strong grounds for treating them as reliable testimony. And above all, that when they're read and proclaimed, in the midst of a service like this, all the words point in one direction towards one center, one person, unseen, and yet utterly alive, excessively alive, more alive than you and me here today, and wholly trustworthy. And what do you need to know when you're seriously tempted to not know it? What do you need to know when you're seriously tempted to turn your back on all the testimony that surrounds you? When when trust cracks in your life and fractures, what do you need to know during those dark days, especially when you're an overseer? What, what do you need to know when, when you're bombarded by bad news or overcome by what seems like this kind of purposeless void in your life when Easter hymns have faded and believing in the risen Lord just seems just really too fluffy for life? What do you need to know? That behind 2,000 years of testimony and behind every word of scripture, there stands one who took hold of you in some way because that's why you're here today, right? Someone who took hold of you, the one who makes room for and has already taken responsibility for all of your doubt, all of your distrust, the one who will return again and again for all to hold on to all unseen and yet fully alive, more alive than any of you here today, fully trustworthy and awaiting for you to cry out when you choose to, my Lord, my God. That is the moment when we will all know what we need to know. Would you pray with me? God, we believe that you are trustworthy. We believe that this text that we read is somehow connected to you, that tells your story, that you have breathed life into people throughout the ages people's lives and stories you have illuminated, and that they, when they tell their stories, that all we are called to do is to trust, to trust the stories that illuminate your resurrection and your life. And they, gosh, these stories feel so fake, God, and they are too big for our minds to comprehend. And thank God you have already taken upon yourself all our doubt, all of our disbelief, and that you welcome it. You say, touch me, feel me, feel me, I am here. And yet that will do us no good. The touching and the feeling we know will do us no good because it first requires trust. For every way that distrust has entered into our lives, God, we repent. Distrust of each other, perhaps we, distrust has entered into our marriages and it is now toxic. Distrust has entered into 
our relationships with people after an election so that we distrust anyone who has a different opinion than we do. Bring us back to the hope of your resurrection that is rooted in trust. We pray together that prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let faith arise In spite of what I see, Lord, I believe But how my unbelief I choose to trust